Hello, and welcome to Educators to Educators podcast. I'm Carrie Conover, and this episode is Students Experiencing Homelessness. Today, we are kicking off a month-long focus on supporting all students at E2E. All of our podcast episodes and social media and content, as well as the membership site, will be focused on the topic of supporting all students. As a matter of fact, we've launched a new module within the E2E membership site that's all about supporting students. So if you're a member, make sure to check that out. It is now open for you to consume. If you're not an E2E member, it's very affordable, $10 a month. You can get a discount if you pay for a year in advance. It's $100 for the entire year. You get access to all the E2E content and videos, over 200 professional development videos created for teachers by teachers. So this month, we're going to talk about how you can support all of the students in your classroom without running yourself into the ground. A large part of helping all your students really just starts with awareness and empowering yourself with knowledge. So that when a student walks into your classroom that may be struggling or experiencing homelessness, that you have that knowledge in the back of your mind of how to best support them. And really, supporting a student who's experiencing homelessness will support other students in your class. And you'll understand more as we get going with today's episode. In this interview, we're kicking it back to two years ago when I interviewed Kelly Coker. In that interview, we discussed student homelessness and how you really can identify students who are in transition and how to best support them. Before we begin today's episode, this episode is sponsored by eSpark Learning. This month, we are collaborating with eSpark on a great webinar, and it is titled E2E Presents Supporting Every Student in Your K-5 Classroom. Educators know that every student in their classroom is important, but how do we go about making sure each student's social-emotional and academic needs are met? Join us for this live webinar with E2E and eSpark as we share out free resources. Yeah, I said it, free. You can use to support all of the students in your class and make sure you're reaching every learner. There's two dates for that. The first one is Thursday, February 20th, 2020 at 6.30 p.m. Central Time and Tuesday, February 25th at 7 p.m. Central Time. You may find links in the show notes if you would like to register for one of those free webinars in which we will give you free resources. So let's get started with this interview with Kelly Coker. Kelly is the Vice President of Programs at School on Wheels in Indianapolis. School on Wheels' mission is to provide one-to-one tutoring and educational advocacy for school-age children impacted by homelessness. The vision of School on Wheels Indianapolis is to equip these children with the educational tools necessary to achieve success in life and break the cycle of homelessness. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here today and talking about a topic that's super important to me. 
Well, I'm really glad you're here. I have to admit to the audience that we have known each other probably longer than either of us want to admit. <laughs> yeah. So Kelly and I have known each other since the fifth grade. And we went to middle school, high school, and the same college together. So we both went to DePaul University in Indiana, which woohoo, shout out to DePaul. And um, so Kelly, before we get started talking about this topic that you are very passionate about and, and a topic that I personally want to learn more about from you, can you tell us about just your education, your history, and what drew you to working with students who are experiencing homelessness? Sure. I went to DePaul University with a plan to pursue a career in education. And for one reason or another, when I got to DePaul, I decided to major in psychology, kind of a normal early college decision where you're not really sure what you're going to do. And I was also in a business program there, which required me to do a semester-long internship. That internship landed me at an organization called Partners in Housing, which focuses on housing for those experiences those people experiencing homelessness. And I really developed a passion for that population while I was working in that internship. You and I probably both know growing up where we grew up in a more affluent area that there's a lot of misperceptions about what it means to be homeless. And this was really my first experience working one-on-one with people who were in this situation. And I really started to develop more of a passion for helping people break that cycle of poverty. And I was really drawn specifically to the youth that were in these situations and focused on how can we intervene in their lives so that they don't end up in the same situation as an adult that they're experiencing as a child. So from Partners in Housing, I went from there, but also continued to have this love for education And I think was really drawn to education because I saw it as the critical factor in children being able to break that cycle. So I went from partners to work in a, actually in a charter school that had a large number of students who were in situations where they were either experiencing homelessness or were at high risk of experiencing homelessness. And so kind of putting those two things together Working at School on Wheels allows me to work specifically on the behalf, on behalf of the population that are experiencing homelessness, but to also do it in the realm of education where I feel like we have the best chance of helping these students break a cycle. Speaking of breaking that cycle, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, um, have you found that this work that you're doing with youth is having a ripple effect maybe with their parents or, you know, their peers Are you seeing that that's growing outside of just those students that you're working with? We definitely do. And that actually has greatly impacted our program development over the course of time. So when School on Wheels initially started, we were a tutoring organization. We worked one-on-one with students to provide tutoring. Our goal was just to support what they're learning in the classroom, make sure they were ready for school the next day, make sure their homework was getting done, kind of tackle some of those things that I think as educators you would typically see in the classroom are the results of the homelessness. And so over the course of time, we started to realize that our intervention with parents would likely have the most long-term impact. So we became twofold focused on continuing the tutoring, working with the students, 
but also trying to help make parents their child's best advocate. So how can we work with parents to engage them in their child's education, maybe be a little bit of a conduit between the parent and the school and help them understand the value of the education as well? Because a lot of the parents we're working with they may have had a negative experience with school. And so when it comes time for them to advocate for their child in the realm of education or be engaged in their child's education, they're hesitant to even walk in the doors of the school or email the teacher or talk to the principal because they still have that fear and anxiety that comes from their school experience. So we're really working with parents on how do we overcome that so that they can be an active participant because people experiencing homelessness are transient. So our interaction with them could be as short as 30 days or up to two years or maybe longer in some instances. So we want to empower these parents with a toolkit that allows them to, when they leave somewhere that we're not present anymore, they still have the tools they have to help their child, encourage their child and be engaged in their child's learning. I absolutely love that. I love that you're empowering the parents to feel comfortable going to that teacher and going to educators and going to schools because the majority of teachers and educators are very, very caring people with hearts that want to help. And I think, one, I'm glad we're doing this podcast to educate teachers so that they know how to help students who are experiencing homelessness. So today when we're talking, we're going to talk about three topics as we always do. We're going to talk about who is homeless um, and a little bit about the legislation behind that, understanding the impact of homelessness. And then we're gonna wrap up talking about what you can do as an educator to help these students. So let's get started with who is homeless. When Kelly and I were talking originally about doing this podcast and we reconnected after all these years, um, she was talking a lot. She was throwing around some terms that I was like, wait, 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 what is, what is that? And I, I didn't learn about this type of legislation when I was going through school. Um, and so we thought it'd be really important to kind of just set the basics here so that we all know what the legislation and kind of the law says about homelessness. So Kelly, what, what is that legislation? What does that look like? Yeah. So the legislation that really is the most comprehensive when it comes to supporting students experiencing homelessness is called McKinney-Vento. And McKinney-Vento legislation was signed into law to protect the homeless population in a lot of different realms. So it established some housing funds. It looked at a a lot of different support services around the homeless community, but then it also was integrated into education policy. So no child left behind, it was integrated in there and now has continued to be integrated as the Every Student Succeeds Act has been signed into law. And so McKinney-Vento really establishes some rights for children who are experiencing homelessness so that they have as much as possible a quality education experience. And so, it not only defines some responsibilities of the school system, like working to identify students who are homeless or having a point of contact within the school district who is responsible for services for homeless students, but it also um, allows families to, if they become homeless during a school year, to maintain a, um, enrollment in their school of origin. So if they become homeless and they have to move or they go into a shelter, 
they don't have to switch to that boundary school. They're allowed to continue at their original school so that we can eliminate disruption of learning, eliminate additional stress on that student, and really support their academic journey without that same interruption that's being caused by their housing situation. Yeah, I mean, I I had, especially the first school that I, I taught at um, in Chicago, I had students who were just kind of, you know, experiencing homelessness or, you know, were living with a family member because of, you know, the loss of their home. And I will say, I feel like having that structure of coming every day and seeing me and seeing their friends and having a routine and having lunch and breakfast, that that really provided uh, a sense of safety for them. And it also, I mean, when students, I can't remember the exact statistics, you may know this, but when a student switches school, no matter what their, you know, status is, uh, they lose, I think can lose up to a year of Learning. Yeah. I mean, the statistic we use a lot that we see is four to six months every time you transition schools, but students experiencing homelessness are likely to switch schools two to three times a year. So, I mean, that year for sure gets lost and maybe even then some. And, you know, I think you brought up an important point as you were talking about the students that you had, you identified a couple different situations that makes a child homeless um, that I think a lot of people sometimes just aren't even aware of. And one of the ones you said was living with another family. And I think that can be difficult as an educator that there's all these different reasons that a student qualifies as being homeless. And when you don't really know the whole picture, sometimes you don't perceive them to be homeless because they may be living in the same house night after night after night, but it's not their house. It's someone else's house that they've had to move to because of financial stress. And so they're displaced from their own home. And so as far as the McKinney-Vinto legislation, that's the other thing it really helps to do is define who is homeless. And so it looks at all of these situations that basically say they don't have a stable place to live. And so it looks at families who are doubled up and tripled up, which is really common. It looks at families that are living in shelters. It looks at families who are living in hotels and motels as a regular means of having housing. Um, And I think when we look at the homeless population, we obviously think of the shelter system, but the fact is 13% of students experiencing homelessness actually access shelter services. So most of them are living in those other situations that a lot of times we might not even think of. Wow. That's, I, that is such a, yes, it is. And it's interesting. I mean, we could probably do another podcast about why that's so low, but I I actually wanted to ask you, so McKinney Vento, when was this legislation passed? How long ago? So, and this, someone might have to fact check me on this, but just because (laughs) McKinney Vento was originally signed into law, not with an educational focus. So, I believe it was Ronald Reagan that originally signed McKinney-Vento into law, and it had more to do with housing services and shelter services. Um, But then there were senators who took that McKinney-Vento legislation and said, this needs to include protection of students who are in school, and we need to build some systems in our public education system to support this same population. Um, And so it was really pulled from an original legislation and pulled into the education realm. Um, 
But it's yeah, been yeah. around for a long time. And so, I mean, it's been a lot around with No Child Left Behind and now with ESSA. Um, so it's made that transition through two different student service acts. So, Do you feel like this legislation has opened up a conversation in schools and with teachers about um, these situations? Because I feel like in the past, it was probably something that people really hit. It has, but I think that also hits on the most difficult part of the legislation. Um, And when ESSA was signed into law in, I think, 2016, that was one of the enhancements it made to McKinney-Vento is a little more structure around how schools need to focus on the identification of students. Okay. So let's talk about that. How does a school identify a homeless student? So there's a lot of different, I guess, signs or things that you would look for both in the classroom or in the family history that might indicate an episode of homelessness. And so it's really a communication piece where school staff are communicating with each other to say, hey, I'm seeing this student who is falling asleep on their desk on a regular basis, or I'm seeing this student who often seems really hungry, or just some of these indicators that you see and trying to identify that. But I think where a lot of the issue too is on the family side of identifying as homeless. And so that can be the difficult journey is when the school sees warning signs, having that hard conversation with a family and really what best practice is, is not to even use the word homeless when you're having this conversation, because that same stigma you're talking about where we are acknowledging, we haven't talked a lot about this in the past. People still feel that today when they are experiencing homelessness. So um, we use a lot of, talking about families who are in transition or experiencing a temporary change in their living situation, just to help families feel comfortable with this kind of identification process, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Because I think people who haven't really put much time to think about um, homelessness, like they're probably their image is, oh, you know, in Chicago, I'm walking down the street and I see, you know, kind of like, tents that people are living in on the street or they're begging for money on the street. And like, that's probably just one segment, but it's super visual and in people's faces, right? That's what they see. And what we're talking about is like this deeper layer here. Um, And I love what you said about how it is. um, I think you said like, it's an episode of homelessness. Is that what you said? Right. Because people can go in and out of that. Absolutely. And it's, if families, I think when we look at a lot of the impacts of homelessness, what we're really looking at is impacts of transience. And so it's important to know that a lot of what you see from students who are experiencing homelessness is going to be very similar to students who maybe are just at a higher level of poverty because there may be a level of insecurity or transience or just not knowing what's coming next, that kind of is pervasive across those experiencing homelessness and those who are just financially insecure. And so though that's really the impact on the student is that transience more than the actual, I would say more than the actual homelessness. 
So what can it, as a teacher, you're seeing these signs and it was, it was interesting as you were talking about that, I was thinking about some of the students I've had in the past where they, you know, like one of my students, I found out a year after he, you know, exited my classroom that he was being like sexually abused. I found it out later, but I always saw the, actually some of the signs that you were talking about where like sleepiness, um, just general signs of like kind of depression or, you know, yeah, sadness, um, just disheveled, never finishing their homework. And so there were like a lot of these signs, but I could never quite put my finger on it. And that's actually one of my biggest heartbreaks of my 10 years in the classroom was finding out later what was going on with that student. Um, I felt, I feel sad to this day that I wasn't able to put my finger on it. Um, but what, as a teacher, you're seeing these things, like you have this line, you have to be careful that you don't cross, right? That you're not being invasive. So what if you are seeing these signs? What do you, what do you do? Well, I think this speaks a little bit to the bigger issue too in McKinney-Vento is understanding as an educator, who in your building is responsible for this population of students. So the way the legislation works is it requires every school district to have a mckinney Vento liaison. So someone who oversees McKinney Vento services. But what's important to understand is, I mean, you understand this in Chicago, there's great disparity between the size and scope of what they deal with in Chicago public schools versus maybe some of the suburban schools. But there, yeah. each of those districts is still required one McKinney Vento liaison. Okay, wait a second. <laughs> oh, sorry. So, okay, I'm going to use the su suburb of Chicago yeah. that I live in, and I'm going to talk about Chicago public schools because I've lived mm -hmm. in Chicago, okay? So you're telling me that the town, the suburb I live in, which frankly, I think my, the town I live in does a really great job of embracing people who are going yeah. through tough times. A lot of the churches and, you know, organizations that moms are involved in here really embrace and those people. But you're telling me that my town has one liaison and Chicago Public Schools has one liaison. They both have uh, They one. are both required to have one. So I... Okay. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, what we see here in Indianapolis is that's absolutely true. Indianapolis Public Schools has one McKinney-Vento liaison and Zionsville Community Schools, which would be more of the suburban area, has one McKinney-Vento liaison. So... Here's what's important to know about that as an educator. There is someone in your building who's doing a lot of the work that doesn't have the title of McKinney-Vento liaison. So that person may be your school social worker, your school counselor, at times that I've seen it be an assistant principal. But it's knowing okay. who in your building is really focused on this issue. Because you're right, as an educator in the classroom, it can be difficult because when you talk about the warning signs of sexual abuse, and I look at my list of warning signs of experiencing homelessness, there is so much crossover. And the bottom line is it's trauma that is causing these things. So they, yes. they can present very similarly. And so that can be a really uncomfortable conversation. It feels accusatory at times, and it's just a difficult place to navigate. And what I think is helpful is being willing to speak those concerns to whoever that person is in your building that 
wears that hat. So here's what I'm seeing from student X in my classroom. I'm worried that something's going on. And being really comfortable having that dialogue with your coworker that they may be able to explore that more. Or maybe they've had another teacher speak into that. And so that person is hearing from two different people, here's what's happening with this child in my classroom, or here's what I'm seeing in the lunchroom, or this is how he behaves at recess. And it starts to establish a pattern of behavior or administration has had conversations with the parents that indicate certain things. And so you can start to put the whole picture together versus being the teacher in the classroom, feeling the weight of that identification, I think is too much. And so, I mean, look, you're carrying that to this day and it's not your sole responsibility. Yeah. I mean, I carry a lot of those things to this day with me, right? Because I back to what you said, Kelly, your passion of the youth and that's where the the cycle Mm -hmm. is broken. Right. I mean, and, and you're right. Like I, I think teachers, the reason a lot of teachers are exhausted is they feel like they have to be so many, a psychologist, a social worker, a teacher, a nurse, uh, all of these things. And I love what you're saying is like, just figure out who it is in your building that you can go to for when you're seeing these signs and just kind of wrap up this section before we talk about like the impact of homelessness, which we've started to get into, but but what does the law say if, if a student is identified as experiencing homelessness? So you said, one, they're allowed to stay within their school to finish mm-hmm. out that school year? They are. So it okay. just allows them to stay in their school of origin through the duration of their homelessness. So it keeps that level of consistency for the child. And then it also requires the school, you direct Title I funding towards students who are homelessness. Um, it it really allows those students to have an academic experience that's similar to their peers. So as far as extracurricular activities, you try to make accommodations for those students to be involved in things that other students are allowed to be involved in. Are they required to, uh, I think I remember that there's some a requirement around making sure that if the student needs to take the bus, that they're you know, they have the funds to be able to take the city bus or get that transportation? So that's how some schools handle the transportation issue. Other school districts, they bus them themselves. You can, I think you're even allowed to reimburse a family for their travel expenses if they have a mode of transportation. So it doesn't tell you exactly how you have to do it. It just tells you that you have to make these accommodations and really continue to engage these families in your school community is really what it sets up for them without saying that. And so it just provides for the identification. It opens the door to services that may be available to them that are above and beyond just the traditional school experience. And then it also helps them to have that traditional school experience. And does that include, I mean, obviously hunger is a big part of homelessness, right? Where's the next thing going to come from? So does that also, you know, in that legislation, is there, is there anything around, you know, breakfast, lunch, that, that type of a, a situation? So those students are going to qualify for free and reduced lunch and school breakfast programs. And so they're going to be able to access all of those programs. Oh, and it does set that up. And a lot of times that's just the nature of their income situation anyway. Yes. Um, but it does protect them in that way. 
Great. Well, let's move on to understanding the impact of homelessness. I, I feel like we got really excited in, in this conversation, so we started to touch on this a little bit, but let's talk about the social emotional impact that you've seen on these students uh, in the classroom. Yeah. So it's kind of like we were talking about a little bit early. There are so many different things that can happen to a child that create behavior issues or social anxiety, or they don't engage with their peers. And homelessness is one of those experiences. So a lot of times the warning sign that a teacher will see it is just that bad behavior, the, the not listening, the anxiousness, the not being able to sit still. And a lot of that is coming from this experience. And so it's also understanding that these children move so frequently. So even within their living situation, they may go from, we live in this hotel room with just our immediate family to, we couldn't pay the next week's rent. So we're going to this homeless shelter where we have this one room with our immediate family, but there's all these other families around us. And just even that situation where at a hotel you're able to isolate as a family and then you go into a homeless shelter and you're eating meals jointly with all these other people. And as a child, you have no control over that. And your parent really doesn't have a lot of control over it either. So you just have this sense of life is happening to you. Mm. And so you exert control where you can. Yep. So you're not going to take, you're not going to do that homework because someone told you to. And that's the only thing you have control over. Wow. Whether or not you finish that assignment. And so you really, and you can see how that same level of transience would impact their relationships with their peers. I'm not going to make friends at this school because in two months, I'm going to be going to a different school. Because while McKinney-Vento legislation does allow you to stay in your school of origin, it doesn't mean your parents have to choose that. That's a lot of work. I mean, I remember the students that I had that were, you know, I taught third, fourth, and fifth grade. So it meant like the parent had to get on the city bus with the student to get them to school. And that would last for a while. But like, maybe that parent's also looking for a job and um, so again, I, it, I have seen firsthand what you're talking about, about the withdrawal. Like, I don't want to be friends. I actually don't even want to bond with you as my teacher. Right. Um, I've seen that. And it's interesting back to what you were saying about going from maybe a motel to staying with another family to going to a homeless shelter. I mean, think about you and I, we're both mothers, right? And we have a home, a safe home that our children come down, come to every day. And we know our neighbors, we know the adults that our student or our kids are around socially. Like we have a lot of control around who our kids are spending time with and who they're getting influence from. Right. Yep. I, I was thinking about how much those parents that are in this situation, they're just trying to like make it all work and they may not have the time to be screening all these people that are having influence on their kids. Right. And I think that, so there's an example here in Indianapolis of a really great organization shelters families and their model, they have a day shelter and then they partner with local churches and families sleep at those churches at night. And the church partnerships change every couple weeks. 
And every time I work with families there, I have so much admiration for the staff that work there and work with these families and create this sense of love and community around them. And I also feel completely stressed out because I have a two-year-old, one of my children is two. And I think about the fact that I have so much trouble getting her to go to bed at night (laughs) in her own bed every night. But if I had to take her to a different place every two weeks and try to establish a routine and get her to bed. And even with above two years old school age children, how difficult would that be for that kid that they're having this level of movement in their life and trying to keep it together at school, trying to pass a test, trying to listen during the day. Like they don't care about fractions, like adding mixed numbers when they're probably haven't got had a great night's sleep and they're, you know, they're distracted yeah. and they're thinking about other things. And something we don't think a lot about when we say, well, McKinney-Vento legislation means they're provided with transportation. So a lot of times because you're living out of district as a McKinney-Vento student, that transportation comes way earlier than any other student in your district to have time to get you back to school or it gets you home way later or both. So your day is longer than other students. A lot of times your bus ride, which as you, you know, you worked with third, fourth and fifth graders, third graders aren't going to do their homework on the bus. Like that's just not going to be something that they're going to get on the bus and think I'm going to tackle my homework on this bus ride. (laughs) Those are all just different challenges that honestly, even until I was working in this organization and working with these families day in and day out, it's so easy to make assumptions about what they could do to make it easier or what they could do to better support their kids. And you just start to see the challenges that pile up against them. And they're so very real. And these are parents who don't want any less for their kids than you or I do. It's such an important point. I think um, just what I've learned is that they want the same things for their children. They really, truly do. And I think there is some judgment sometimes like, oh, they're just being lazy or, oh, they're, you know, they're an addict or, you know, I feel like there's a lot of judgment passed on to parents. And I love that you said that they also want the same things for their kids that we do. Yeah. And we talk a lot about the whole idea of understanding if when you're homeless, you're living in a shelter, maybe you landed there because of domestic violence or medical bills, or someone lost a job that wasn't expecting to lose a job. So in most of those situations, you're in a place where the parent is probably unemployed. So they're looking at getting a job to earn income, to get out of the situation that you're in. But you're also then you have a kid who may be experiencing anxiety or a change in behavior that's getting you called to the school constantly to address behavior issues. So you got a job, but now you lose it because you've left to go to the school to handle this behavior issue too many times in too short of a period of time. Yeah. And so everything just stacks up. And a lot of what we say as an organization is we hope to come around these families So that if the ball that has to drop for the parent for a period of time is their child's education, we're there to support that so that it can drop, but it doesn't get ignored. And the parent can get some other things put back together. 
and then re-engage in that educational process because we know the reality is something has to give. And so something's going to give no matter what. It's just a matter of whether there's another support system underneath that to keep it moving in the right direction while the parent is able to help improve their lives in all these other ways that need to be handled as well. Kelly, I mean, your organization is just phenomenal. Like as you're talking, I actually have goosebumps. Um, I I just, it's so incredible. And I know we don't have a ton of time to talk about all the amazing work that you do. So I want to make sure that at the end, we're going to give out information where you can read more about School on Wheels Indianapolis. You can read more about how you can support what they're doing there um, and that great work. And also, I mean, I would just encourage no matter where you live, there's there's organizations out there that are trying to help with this problem, whether it's School on Wheels. I'm sure I know of several in Chicago that are doing incredible work. Yeah. Breakthrough is uh, one in Chicago that's doing a lot of incredible work around this. So kudos to you. And I, I wish we could sit and talk about all this programming that you're doing. So read up on that on the website. We'll give that at the end. But I, I do want to move into talking about you're a teacher listening to this. Um, what, what can teachers do? I mean, we, I know there were times I had 32 students and they were one, like almost every single one of them were free and reduced lunch, right? Living either in poverty or low, lower income bracket. And so I was overwhelmed a lot, especially if I got a new student. So let's talk about this in two different ways. Maybe one is you have a student who has been in your class all year long, is now experiencing homelessness. And then how do we kind of have best practice around a student who comes in the middle of the year that is also experiencing homelessness? Okay. So I think the first thing that's most important, and you just hit on this, Carrie, is that overwhelming sense that teachers have. And you mentioned it earlier too, in that there is so much expected of teachers to be all, wear all these different hats. And this feels like one more thing piled on top of it. And so I do want to reiterate your point of seeking out community organizations, because I think that there is a valuable role and it would just... uh, if those organizations exist in your community, it will alleviate some of that pressure for sure. And so I think as a classroom educator, if you have a student who is has been in your classroom all year and then experiences an episode of homelessness, I think the first thing to know is you're probably not going to know it right away. So like we said, you're going to start to see some of those signs And then what you do is you start having those conversations with other people in the building who may interact with that child and see if you can establish that this is what's happening. And I think here's what's most important in the classroom is treating that child the same as you did the day before you knew. And so I think there is so much of that stigma that comes with being homeless and You want to accommodate for that student, but not in a way that identifies them with so that their peers become aware or it just feels like an extra pressure for that student. And so when I when I'm talking about that, I think a lot of what we see is and this is trends in education in general, but education is moving more towards a technology base or research this on the Internet and then do a report or You know, there's just all these different things. Well, a lot of the kids that we work with don't have access to the internet, which floors most of us still to this, you know, that that's a thing. Um, Or they, 
they can access a computer at the shelter, but it's after everybody else gets off of it and it could be 1030 at night. Or the computer lab closes at seven and they don't get home before then. So it's just thinking through what is what are the assignments I'm giving? How does that need to be altered for this student in this specific scenario? Um, it is a little bit of stepping up the game of care and concern for that student, I think, because like you said, if you are the consistent face for this child, if they are entering a an episode of homelessness and they're choosing to stay in their school of origin, you are the consistent face. And it's, and I feel like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth in the sense of saying, don't carry the weight as a teacher and try to engage other people in this process. But it is important to know, I think that you are the consistent face. And like we said, only 13% of these kids are living in shelters where they're easily identified as homeless. So for the other kids, there may not be this identification that brings additional support services along with it. So it's the classroom is where they're getting some of those supports, um, whether that's just yeah. an emotional support or, hey, I think tutoring would be really beneficial right now, even if their grades haven't dropped yet. Because yeah. what tutoring brings more than it brings academic support sometimes is it brings a person who's going to develop a relationship with that student and they're going to meet with them week after week after week to help support their education, but also to say, hey, how are you doing today? How are things going? So it's kind of a twofold approach. I, it's in, I don't think you're talking out of both sides of your mouth in a way, because I think that kids just want to be seen. Like every kid wants to be seen as an individual, especially with like the class sizes we've been battling, right? Yeah. I feel like when I'm listening to you, it could just be like, I know this is going to sound super cheesy, but it could just be like an extra long eye contact when you're doing a read aloud or an extra smile or an extra... No. Hey buddy. Like, so glad you're, I'm so glad you're here today. I was thinking about you last night. Like, remember that joke you told me last week that I was thinking about that joke and I told it to my friend. Like, I know that stuff all sounds cheesy, but more and more, especially as I get older, I just think about it. And I think about a kid in this situation, they probably just feel lost in the shuffle. And like for an adult to acknowledge they're alive and there must feel really good. Absolutely. And that also brings up another point that this was actually highlighted to us by one of our school partners. And I think it's just an amazing thing to think about as a school system or just even as a classroom teacher. They talked a lot about Monday morning and how difficult Monday morning is for their students who are homeless because they school is their safe place. It's where everything kind of runs the same as it did the day before. You know what to expect. You you know, this is what happens at 8.30 and this is what happens at 12.30 and you just kind of know what to expect. But they are coming off a weekend where everything could have changed in their life. So because of their transience, maybe over the weekend, they left living with that, their aunt and uncle, because their parents got in a fight and the aunt and uncle don't want you to stay there anymore. So now you're in a hotel and you come back to school on Monday and you're supposed to act like everything is just the same as it was on Friday. And so what they as a school system have decided to do is to start to try to physically lay eyes on every student that they know is in this situation 
on Monday morning as they're coming off the bus and entering the school. Because a lot of them come in in a mood or in a funk or experiencing some emotion that is going to disrupt the classroom before they even get started. And so they've started looking at how do we give them a space to come into the building on Monday morning and not go immediately into the classroom if that's the place that they're in. So I think even as a teacher, if you know you have these students in your classroom, it's that Monday morning check-in. Like, ooh, this looks really bad first thing on Monday morning. I'm going to have an alternative way for this student to engage until they're really ready to come and learn. And I think it's something simple, right? Like, hey, Tommy, you know what I realized? I realized the library and the classroom is like totally disheveled from the weekend. While we're doing our morning work, could you be my special helper and go over there and just straighten it up? Or just, I mean, whatever works for that kid, right? Yes, absolutely. And a lot of it is not only that break that you give them by reorganizing the library, but you've identified them as having this like special gift or ability to do that. So you're also building into that student. And, you know, it's kind of that same principle of we have a student that we work with one-on-one at his school because he just cannot function when we're in a room with 20 groups of one-on-one tutors. So we go into his classroom and we work with him during the day and our staff person there kind of followed up with the teacher and said, Hey, how was the rest of his day after I was there? Just, you know, out of curiosity. And the teacher said to us, you know, when he gets that attention from you one-on-one first thing in the morning, I always know the rest of the day will be fine. Because he's not looking for that attention for the rest of the day. So even if their weekend was just that, like parents have so many other things going on that they didn't get paid attention to. And they walk in Monday morning and you say, hey, buddy, organize the library because this is a really important job that needs to be done. They've been identified. They've been noticed. They've been seen. And it could set the whole trajectory for the day in a different direction than if you come in do morning work that you don't understand, get frustrated with your math. And then during the bathroom break, you shove someone in the hallway because you just don't know what to do with all your frustration. It's, it's interesting as a teacher too, when you're, you know, when you have a lot of social emotional stuff going on in your classroom in general, there's a lot of pressure on teachers academically, get the test up, show this growth, show, show that. Yeah. And a lot of times it is also seeing the academic as it's, it's a means to an end at some level. So when we tutor students who are living in emergency shelters where their max stay is going to be 30 to 45 days, so we know that's how long they're going to be here before they have to go somewhere else. We tutor them, but we do that as a means to provide stability, maybe provide some assistance in an area that they're low in, but we give them a safe place to land three nights a week while they're living in the chaos of a shelter. And so it is, but we just know at the same time as a, as an educational organization, and this is a difficult place for us to arrive to, but we know that in 45 days, we are not going to turn around a student's academic career. <laughs> it's not, it's not long enough. It's not, and what can we do and what we can do is keep them in school during a period where they are very likely to experiences, experience long amounts of absence. So parents move into a shelter and they don't 
they aren't able to get right on top of arranging that transportation. So the kid sits out two, three, four, five days of school. So even if nothing else, they're spending, you know, some time with us working on basic math and literacy. And so it's just, but we're doing that in the end to keep them engaged, but also to support the social emotional because that, and it's the same with, you know, when you look at kindergarten readiness, social emotional is really the most important part of kindergarten readiness, because if you don't have that, you can't do the learning. It's so true for these kids at every stage of life, all the way up to a senior in high school who's experiencing homelessness. If we don't look at the social emotional, we're shooting ourselves in the foot with the academics. Well, that leads us to a perfect segue before we end this. I I do want you to tell us about uh, what your organization does. Then I would love for you to tell us, you know, the ways that we can support School on Wheels in Indianapolis. Is there a way if people want to donate, if they wanted to volunteer, if they're in the Indianapolis area, um, how can they support you? So one, what, what, what are the nuts and bolts of what you all do? And then how can we all support you? Like I said before, our approach is really twofold. We work directly with students providing one-on-one tutoring, and we have over 400 volunteers over the course of the year that do that tutoring. So it's a great way to both support students in their academics, but also engage the community in this population um, and make people comfortable. Like you said, a lot of times this is something people don't want to talk about, or who wants to come to grips with the fact that children are living in homelessness. And so this just opens the door to that and really helps people love and support this community. And so we partner with homeless shelters and we partner with local schools to provide tutoring. And a lot of that, we do some lunchtime programs, but we do a lot of after-school tutoring. And then in the shelters, we're there in the evening. And like I said, in emergency shelters, we're doing a lot of that social, emotional, providing stability. In transitional living or in schools where we are able to see students over a longer period of time, we really work to connect with their teachers. What do you want us to be working with this student on? Where, what are ways we can support them? And we really try to create these individualized tutoring plans that address some of the biggest deficiencies that these students have academically But then we also are doing that social emotional. Here's a tutor who's going to show up every Tuesday night and be here with you to kind of walk through some of this stuff. And then, like I said before, the other huge part of what we're doing is working with these children's families. And so we kind of have adopted a case management approach where we work with parents and we say kind of what are the goals that we want to achieve with your child's education and what's your role in that? How can we help you communicate with the school? How can we help you be more informed? And really what we do a lot of is we do parent workshops. We work with parents one-on-one. And a lot of times what we'll find out is really simple things. Like I know my child has an IEP, but that got left at my last living location. And so I don't currently have a copy of it. Great. Goal number one, let's get a copy of your IEP. So how do you do that? You email this person. Okay, let's write an email that says what... So we're really working with these parents at a like however deep we need to go. Um, a lot of parents don't feel comfortable going to a parent-teacher conference because they feel like they don't have enough knowledge to speak into that process. So we go with them. And we really are able to help them ask the right questions and get, we don't want to go for them, 
but we want to go with them. And so really just supporting these parents in this space where they are also having a lot of transition and help them engage in their child's education as much as they're possibly able to. And so there's lots of different ways to support school on wheels. Obviously, when I say we have 400 tutors every year, that's a great way to support school on wheels. And it's great because there is no, I mean, you don't have to be a retired teacher. You don't have to be someone who has a degree in education. Um, we will use anyone to kind of, there, people have different gifts and abilities and everyone can read. And so you can work with kids on reading and just, we work with all different levels of kids so we can kind of put you where you feel comfortable. And so volunteering is obviously a great support. And how many hours, let's say, you know, let's say I'm an accountant and I know that from, January 1st to April 15th, I am going to be swamped and I just cannot volunteer, but I have time in the summer. I have time in the fall. Do you take those things in in consideration so people don't get scared away that, oh, I have to do this for eight hours a week, every week? Yep. We require a semester long commitment. So we really allow people to pick those seasons that are not overwhelming for them. And then it's an hour a week. So it's not Everyone can do an hour a week. Right. And we even allow, you know, if you're listening to this and you're not currently an educator and you work at a company in the Indianapolis area, we do team tutoring. So X company has four people that really fill one tutoring slot. So they go once a month because they aren't able to make once a week. And so we really try to accommodate ways for people to really engage in this. And then Obviously, financial support for what we do is always huge. We, all of our funding comes from individuals, corporate sponsorship, foundations. Um, so we do a lot of fundraising to support this mission. But, and we're doing more and we're trying to grow. And that is an increased burden on our fundraising. But we're doing it because kind of like we started this whole thing, we truly believe that this that making sure these students are supported in their education is going to be the leading indicator of their ability to break out of this cycle. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) And on the social emotional level and on the academic level, I just want to remind teachers out there. I think for me, the biggest takeaway from talking to you is you are the consistency. You are love, your warmth, you're providing safety for that student every day in your classroom. Um, and so I just want to remind teachers out there that, you know, the job is hard, but think about what you're bringing into students' lives every day, especially a student who's experiencing homelessness. Um, Kelly, I have to say, this is the longest podcast I've ever recorded. (laughs) And I think it's because, man, we dug deep and we're talking about some really important topics. I love the mission of School on Wheels in Indianapolis and, you and I are definitely going to keep in touch so I can see how I can support. I wish I could come down to Indy every week and volunteer. That's not possible, but I know there's ways that I'll be able to support all of you. Um, But thank you so much for taking this time out of your day. Um, And who would have known as little 10 year olds that you and I would be recording a podcast together. Same bus. Yes. So thank you so much for having me. I feel like it's so important for people just to be aware of this issue because I think it does get hidden so much. And so I love this opportunity just to share and, you know, to anyone who's listening, I would also welcome further dialogue. So if there's questions or people want to 
have more dialogue around how they can support their students or what that looks like. I would totally welcome any of that. Thank you to Kelly Coker for joining us today for this discussion on students experiencing homelessness. I'm Carrie Conover, and I would love for you to follow me on Instagram, educators to educators. So educators, number two educators, let's stay connected. And to all of you, until next time, keep on teaching on.